Well, as I'm sure all of you know, we have been in a sermon series in Ezekiel right now. What we are doing last week and this week is taking a bit of an, a bit of an excursus, a bit of a side road to look at two texts in the book of John on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so last Sunday being Pentecost Sunday, today being Trinity Sunday, we're going to focus on uh, uh, two texts in the book of John on uh, the Holy Spirit. Last week, the text was out of chapter 14. Uh, This week, we'll be looking at John chapter 16, and so we'll proceed to that text right now. John chapter 16, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, Uh, and actually in the upper room, the same place where they would uh, share the Lord's Supper together. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, and he tells them that he will be leaving them. And he even tells them that that they're sorrowful at this news, because he also gives them at the start of chapter 16 this sort of unhappy bit of information that persecution is going to come. And so as temptation and persecution come, what do the disciples need most? Jesus knows what they need most, and he gives it to them here in this text. That is, his words, the promise of his words, and the promise of his victory. And so the reason why I've set aside uh, kind of this past Sunday and today to talk about Uh, what God has given to us by His gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not because, as some might say, you might have heard some say this before, that that we we feel bad about the Holy Spirit because He doesn't get talked about as much. I'm not advocating that way of thinking about the Holy Spirit because, as we just heard actually, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit's desire is to glorify Him. And so we're not doing this because the Holy Spirit is lonely or feels forgotten and that we need to talk about Him more, but rather because it is good for us always to be aware of what manner of God we worship. That's how we started the service, behold our God, right? And so let's begin to get into this text. I'm going to go through the first six verses and offer some reflections for you. 
Jesus says to them, I've said all these things to you, these bits of of encouragement and teaching that he's given them to keep you from falling away. They, that is the rulers of the the synagogues, the religious leaders of the day, will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That is very discouraging. It's very discouraging to hear that your enemy who's opposed to you and wants to kill you is, as far as he knows, doing good. And so Jesus goes on to say, they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. How encouraging to know that again, when you look around and you see as best you can tell your enemy who's opposed to you because he thinks he's doing well, Jesus wants them to hold on to this reality that they don't actually know God in the first place. He goes on and he tells them, I've said these things to you, these words of encouragement, that when the hour of persecution comes, you may remember that I told them to you. It's always so important to the Lord that we remember what he said, right? That we remember what the Sabbath day is, for instance, and that we remember what it is when we gather together to worship, that we remember uh, his crucifixion and his body and blood given for us at this table. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, returning to the Father. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And so for the rest of the text, Jesus means to speak to them about a helper or comforter or advocate who will answer this sorrow. He says something then in verse 7 that is probably going to sound bizarre. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. (laughs) It's almost like he has to say that because what he's about to say sounds very odd. It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So how can it be that Jesus' departure, he's telling them that he's going to the cross, that he's going to die, he's going to be crucified, And then again, we who know the rest of the story, there's going to be an ascension. And so even after returning to them after the resurrection, there's going to be an extended time that's been running since that day until this day where Jesus is saying, I'm going away, but I'll send the Holy Spirit. So let's then start with why would Jesus leave? Let's start there before we get to how is this good that he's leaving? Why would he leave? The answer is, the short answer is, because he's the king, okay? Because he's the king. And when a king is finished conquering, what does he do? He returns to the throne, as it were, and he sits down. Right? He sits down, not because he's tired, but because he's finished. Okay? And so why is that good? Why is that good? Well, that could be its own sermon and maybe its own sort of Bible study together. But at least take this answer just to ruminate on for the moment. Would you want your Savior and the King of the universe to remain bound by time and space? Right? So he enters into time and space to do this work of purchasing and securing our salvation. Do we want him then to remain here? Or do we want him, stay with me, in heaven before the Father advocating that blood and righteousness over us? You want the Son of God wrapped in flesh like you to be seated on His throne. You want Him to send His Holy Spirit 
who will come and transform you so that you become more and more like him. D.A. Carson points out that the disciples, you remember, were still trembling traitors, or at least they soon would be, on the night of Jesus' betrayal. He says, yet a few weeks later, a few weeks later, they go from trembling traitors to, once the Holy Spirit's been poured out on them, bold and courageous and fearless apostles. Once the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, they face open hostility with courageous joy and triumphant faith, prompting Luke to write in the book of Acts, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Even when they were flogged, they testified to Jesus with joy. Where did these guys come from? Jesus, in John 16, does not exaggerate. It is for your good that I go and send the Holy Spirit who will transform you into apostles and the uh, the witnesses and, and, pro- and professors and confessors of my gospel who will be able to stand firm when this kind of temptation and persecution comes against you. So then, what exactly is it that the Holy Spirit does whom Jesus sends? If you go to the next verse, please. And b- before I answer that question, I just want to mention briefly, I'm not being paid for this little endorsement, but this week... I read a book by Michael Horton that I found extremely just encouraging and helpful called Rediscovering the Holy Spirit by Michael Horton, like, you know, the Dr. Seuss guy that hears a who, that one, Uh, not related to Dr. Seuss, but but Michael Horton's a a really solid theologian, um, and I enjoyed this book very much, Uh, probably the best book I've ever read on the Holy Spirit. Um, So Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, it's a bit dense at times. Horton is a scholar, and so at times scholars, in order to justify their points have to pick fights with other scholars you've never heard of so they just you know will randomly bring up so and so's work who says this and such and they have to then correct it and he does that a lot so you'll you'll get used to that if you read it but um but it's very good and very helpful and was uh, helped me to form this sermon but john's uh in in john 16 jesus begins by telling them when he the holy spirit comes he will convict the world three things convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, so let's go through those three things briefly. First, the, the Holy Spirit is coming to reveal sin, Jesus says. Now, the sin of who? Well, we know it's the sin of the world, talking about those who don't believe. And he says in verse 9, so what is this that the Spirit's going to reveal concerning sin? Why does the Spirit need to reveal sin? Because they do not believe in me, Jesus says. Okay, so believing in Jesus then starts with the recognition that I am a sinner. This is what the church has always confessed, that believing in Jesus and following after Jesus begins with this recognition that I am a sinner. And our flesh, that is, your, your nature and my nature as it is, hates acknowledging that we're sinners. That's why we invent new words for it. Right? We call it, we say we, we make mistakes. Right? Or we talk about our brokenness. Or we, we just say, well, I'm not perfect. I've got a lot of imperfection, right? All three of those are true. It's different, though, to confess that you're a sinner. This is why we continue, I mean, every Sunday and beyond that, to confess. The, the Greek word, by the way, means to say the same thing. And so to confess the truth about God and ourselves is to say what God has said right? about me and about you and about our sin. 
so that we can again hear the gospel, the good news, that our sins are forgiven, that God the Father has sent His Son wrapped in flesh, who died our death and was raised up again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when your spirit hears that word and rejoices, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Right there. You see, the Holy Spirit is your Lord and your God living within your heart. Christian, and when you hear the voice of your shepherd in the Scripture, forgiving your sin, the Holy Spirit presses that into you so that you say, Amen. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He reveals sin. He shows us what sin is, shows us that we are sinners, so that we can know Christ. And when the trials and difficulties, and here we see the the persecutions in life come, what do we need most? We need the words and the victory of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit comes to graciously reveal to us that we can believe His words and be assured of His victory. But not only sin, Jesus says something else, doesn't He? He says when He comes, He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness is the next one. So righteousness. So what exactly does it mean to say the Spirit reveals righteousness? I want you to walk along with me for a moment because I want to show you uh, that what Jesus is talking about here is what we would call false righteousness or a sense of righteousness that the world has that God has to reveal to us is actually false. An example of this uh, happens in the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet. And Isaiah says this, We have all become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Right? So our, the things we think are good works are so thoroughly affected by sin. And, and I'm sure you can attest to this, that even the good works that you do, don't they often like start in sometimes really twisted motivations? And even what to any outsider or onlooker would look like a really good work, they have no idea the condition of your heart and what's happening in your heart as you carry it out. Another example of this is Romans chapter 10, verse 3 where Paul talks about a very similar concept. And he says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, speaking of the sinful world, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Right? And you, you can think of many times in the Gospels, if, you've, if you're familiar with the Gospel stories, that, that Jesus keeps coming to the Pharisees, these religious leaders who are supposed to be masters of their religion, as it were, and He just keeps exposing their hypocrisy again and again and again and showing they don't, don't know what it means to follow God, even though by all appearances they're very religious. So Jesus comes to reveal the sin of the world, so He comes to reveal the false righteousness of the world. uh, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us, which is not a righteousness at all. So He comes to expose a false righteousness. And this is perhaps one of the most troubling aspects of Jesus' ministry and of the Holy Spirit's ministry that it reveals, again, that it's not only our sin that condemns us, it is our supposed goodness. We think we're good. It's one of the biggest problems that you and I face is the temptation to believe we're basically good and decent people. D.A. Carson again says, the Holy Spirit continues this work today of revealing false uh, righteousness, and it is sorely needed. Men and women of the world do not ordinarily think of themselves as lost 
or as sinful, they think of themselves as basically good. If the Lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world, then surely we suppose it has to be somebody else's sin. If we are good citizens, helpful in our community, upright, scrupulously religious, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, isn't that enough? Well, let's go to verse 9 and see what Jesus says about that. Why does the Spirit come to reveal this righteousness? Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. In the next bit, oh, sorry, I think that was supposed to be verse 10. I apologize, that's my, that's my mess up. Verse 10, uh, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, that's really weird. Concerning righteousness, Jesus says, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. So let me read that again, just so in case I lost you. So Jesus says that the Spirit's coming into the world to convict the world concerning righteousness. And then he adds, uh, convicting them concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you won't see me anymore. Now that connection, that sort of grammatical connection is not obvious. Okay, so he's going. We won't see him anymore. Why does that... Why does that mean he's coming to reveal righteousness? Because how often did Jesus in his earthly ministry do exactly this? He exposed the evil of our supposed righteousness. There's this brilliant moment in the book of Acts when Peter testifies to who Jesus is before the religious authorities and he does so really skillfully and basically out-debates them in this moment. And so then you read, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Because they just got out-argued and out-talked by these common fishermen. And they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. Now, the way that verse is handled is sometimes uh, almost wrapped in a kind of devotional aspect to say like, can people recognize that you've been with Jesus today? (laughs) Okay, I mean, fair enough. People should be able to know that you're a Christian by the way you live. I'm not assaulting that at all or objecting to that at all. That's just not what Luke means here. What you have is this moment here where the religious leaders just got out-talked, outsmarted by fishermen, and there's this moment where they go, this feels familiar. (laughs) Oh, yeah, Jesus used to do this to us, right? Which is like a big point of the book of Acts to say, yes, he has ascended, but he's still right here working by the power of his spirit. Right? And so, so they realize they've been with Jesus because they are exposing the false righteousness just like Jesus did. And the thing is, it's, this is really good news because I don't know if you've noticed that our world is desperate for righteousness. Like we, you might think of that as like a religious term that we don't really talk about outside of uh, a church building. But have you noticed that our, our political and social debates at the moment are an absolute wasteland because people are desperate to be found righteous? And if you do not have a God who's actually done something about your sin, your only hope for righteousness is to be better than the people you hate. That's all you've got. And this is our temptation too. Just because we are saved and rescued and, uh, and we have these gifts, uh, it doesn't mean that we're immune to this temptation. The temptation to put ourselves on a team or in a tribe and find our sense of righteousness in what we hate or despise. Thank you, Lord, for not making me like those liberals and leftists, right? 
Thank you, God, for not making me like those uh, cheesy, foolish evangelicals on TV. That one's mine. That that one's mine. This is a question that we have to confront then. Where are you trying to get your sense of righteousness from? A lot of times it's going to be through good works, right? By being a really good husband, by being a really good uh, employee, by being a really good mom or dad, by being a really good wife, by, be, by contributing a lot of time to even to your local church, right? These, these things are all good. Everything I just named there, good, even given to us by God, right? So go and walk in them and do these things. Yes and amen. But oh, be careful that it's not where you try to find your sense of righteousness from. And so how do you, how do you go to war with that? Well, ask the Lord. Ask God to reveal to you the ways in which you try to count yourself righteous, and He will, by the power of His Holy Spirit. Lord, show these things to me. And He will, because He sends His Holy Spirit to convict the world of their false sense of righteousness. That's why we we have the Holy Spirit. And until you see your righteousness, (laughs) in many ways, the same way you see your sin, you will never come to Christ. This is the gospel that we receive the totalizing, perfecting work of Jesus Christ, and it comes from Him, outside of us, righteousness of another, right? Not within us, worked up in us, perfected by us, cultivated by us, but from outside of us. Jesus says, this is my righteousness, and it is a gift. It is not something that you are working up. It's a forgiveness and a cleansing and a healing that comes from outside of you not within you. And you need that in the moments of your affliction or difficulty or pain or trial or persecution. The words of Jesus, His salvation, which is better than the fake pictures of righteousness you're trying to paint for yourself because it makes you feel better than those that you hate. So what's the third thing? Sin, righteousness, judgment is the last thing, isn't it? Jesus says that the Spirit comes to reveal sin, or excuse me, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And here he means judgment. Think of that in the sense of judgment call, like making a judgment. And I'll show you why in just a moment. But judgment of what we see. Jesus is, what, Jesus is here referencing what we might also call discernment or, or judging what we see to be good or bad. So if we go to verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, what's happening to the ruler of this world, a term used in John to refer to Satan, you don't expect that the ruler of the world's going to get judged. Why? Well, because it looks like he's in charge. When you look at the chaos of the world and the pain in the world and the suffering that happens in the world, your conclusion is that if there's a benevolent force and an evil force, the evil force must be winning. So that's just to put it in sort of pagan terms for you. Jesus is saying concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That is, Satan who always presents us with judgment calls that operate as an alternative to what God has said and opposed to what God has said. It's been that way since the garden. Has God really said? And, and the serpent tempted Eve with something that looked good to her eyes, right? This has been the game since the garden. The devil, your enemy, wants to use what you see, that is, your circumstances, 
and your interpretation of your circumstances to determine what is true. To observe your surroundings and then to make a judgment call on what God is saying or doing. This is especially tempting and, and, and dangerous way to live. To believe our eyes and our circumstances rather than what God has said. And here in verse 11, Jesus is speaking of the cross. Where all we think we know is reversed. All we think we know gets reversed at the cross. You see, human observation and analyzing circumstances. If you could get into you know, uh, uh, Doc's time machine and go back in time and stand at the, at the literal foot of the cross, what you would notice is that everyone around you, save a few, the disciples perhaps, uh, but I think probably even the disciples then, now that I, I think about that a, a second time, that, that human observation of that moment in history would say, this man has lost, Right? I see before me a blasphemer, a humiliated fool, and a liar who, according to the sign above his head, pretends to be a king. But in reality, this naked dying man on a cross is God wrapped in flesh dying for his enemies. Only the Holy Spirit reveals to you what that seemingly ridiculous moment in time and space actually is. And if you believe your eyes and your circumstances... You will disbelieve God's word. You will. You will make judgments, judgment calls, and decisions that are opposed to what God has actually said in his word, which is why the ruler of the world is judged. Because all that the ruler of the world would have you believe gets flipped upside down by the work of Jesus. He goes on to say this this really interesting bit to them. He says, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. I won't spend a lot of time there, but... But just bear in mind, I think that's a, just a, a sweet word from the Lord to his disciples where he's saying, I know what you can handle right now. I have this discernment to know what you are able to bear right now. And those things you will learn later after the resurrection. Keep this in mind, dear saints, when talking to Christians or when talking to unbelievers that there is more to our speech than saying uh, what, it, what is true, right? Telling it like it is, we might say. So th- there's a time where you may have a lot of true things to say. It just may not be the time to say them. Like Proverbs has a lot to say about this if you want to explore it more. Proverbs has a lot more to say about your silence than your speech, inter- interestingly enough. Verses 13 and 14. Well, yeah, start with verse 13. Thank you. When the spirit of truth comes, here's what he will do. He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Right? And then verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? What on earth does it mean? Jesus again and again told his disciples that he was, as it were, I'm paraphrasing here, on a mission from the Father, giving to them what they did not yet understand. 
And he has been doing that throughout his ministry, revealing more and more of who the Father is. The Spirit will do something similar. He will take what belongs to Jesus, that is, his, his words, his promises, all the comforts he's been giving them, and continue to give it to the apostles and, by extension, to us. You know how I know that? Because they wrote it down. And, we have, and, and so we now have God's word and promises for us in the Scriptures. And this is where most of our conversation about the Holy Spirit happens, about how He operates within us according to God's Word. And what we see in the Scriptures is that most of the Holy Spirit's work, by no means all of it, but a whole, whole lot of it, is taking God's words and applying them to your heart. Taking God's words and applying them to your heart. Taking God's words and putting them in your heart, opening your eyes not only to see what they mean, but how they should affect your living. And so... Just, just as an easy example of this, have you ever been praying the Lord's Prayer? You can already answer that one, yes. And when you get to the bit about debts and debtors and forgiveness, a name pops into your head. <laughs> yeah. That would be an example of the Holy Spirit and how He is gracious to apply that Word of God to your heart. He takes Jesus' words and continually declares them to you so that you can confess them. Now, I want to answer what I think is the most obvious question that comes up when we talk about the Holy Spirit's work and His, His communicating to us God's will and work in our lives. And that is, you know, it's easy enough to say, all right, so I read God's word. I hear him, hear him speak right there in his word. Those are his words. Those are his words that I'm reading. And then the Holy Spirit takes those and convicts me of sin and my fake righteousness and the reality that my judgments are false and his are right. And that's why I'm reading the word and so on and so forth. But what about other times? What I like to call, uh, what about the spiritual two by four? You know, so you are walking along, as it were, minding your own business and pff, just you get some sort of idea in your head, Right? Now, is that me or is that the Holy Spirit? Or if, if, the, if, the, if the spiritual two-by-four that I just got hit with has the sense that I should, you know, go to McDonald's rather than some other restaurant or something like that. You know, it's a random example. But how do we handle those moments? And do we ascribe to those moments a kind of divine authority? And how do you know, right? And all these questions surround kind of operating and walking in the Spirit, what we might say. To answer that question, or at least to try to get at it, I think, again, that's, this, this ignites a lot of other conversations. Um, but to try and get at that question, I want to share with you two stories. Okay? Neither of them are mine. Both of them come from pastors uh, that I know or know of. One of them was um, one of the campus pastors that I knew when I attended Liberty, uh, Liberty University in Virginia. And he, he told us the story about how he uh, was sitting in his office one day and he just had this sense that he was supposed to go to the mall to get his haircut. He'd already planned to go get a haircut that day, but, and he, never, he said, I never go to the mall to do it. I had a, my own barber and you know, that's where I went, and, but I, just, I should go to the mall. I, I even like, mentioned it to the secretary, and like, I'm going to go to the mall to get a haircut. Okay, all right, good for you. Right? So, he, so he leaves, he goes to the mall and still feels weird about it. But he just has this sense, I should go to the mall to get a haircut. He sits down in the chair, and the lady who's going to cut his hair said, uh, you know, so what kind of haircut do you want? And he told her, and then she got to work, and she said, what do you do for a living? 
And he said, well, I'm a pastor. And he said, she stopped and she said, oh, my God. And he said, which is scary. Somebody's holding scissors and you tell them you're a pastor and they say, oh, my God. Right? And so he, he says, is there something wrong? And she says, well, I, I told the Lord this morning that if he didn't send someone to talk to me today, I was going to kill myself. Okay. Wow. All right. So, so what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Let me just start by saying this. Here's where I think a lot of evangelicalism goes wrong. It takes a story like that and says that then, Christian, what's given to you is to develop the discipline to tap into the secret heavenly code. All right? And if you're the right kind of Christian, living the right kind of obedience, doing the right kinds of quiet times and daily devotionals, you will have this special connection with heaven where your gut feelings will now be direct communication from Lord Almighty. The problem is that's not promised to you in Scripture. Okay? Now, did I say it doesn't happen? No. I said it's not promised to you in Scripture, nor does Scripture have much to say about how to continually keep the line of communication open. Lots and lots of books in Christian bookstores have been written to tell you how to keep the line of communication open because there's precious little about this in the Scriptures about any such thing. It's on how to hear God's voice without you know, actually hearing a voice, which everybody in Scripture seems to have actually heard a voice. And so we take the still small voice, which is, by the way, a voice, and then talk about it as though it's not a voice. That's a different sermon for a different time. But I've known Christians who have just tied themselves in endless knots over this. Why does God seem to speak to everyone around me? Why does everyone keep getting all these messages why is that guy, you know, he gets told to go to the mall and get, and get his hair cut? And that doesn't happen to me. I'd really like to know, you know, who to marry and which job to take. And uh, I'm, I'm just over here like barely knowing what color socks to put on in the morning. And it leads, it can lead to just this endless treadmill of discouragement and despair because you feel like really unspiritual and that you should have this kind of live wire communication line going that's not happening. Here's the reality, okay? The reality is that I, I would say, based on testimonies that I've heard, I mean, like the, one, like the one that I just shared with you, that those things do happen. So I'm not saying that they're not real or that this pastor's story was not real. I, I think it more than likely, right, more than likely that it was indeed the Lord leading him in that direction. But here are some things I want to make clear. I am not saying that it's normative or that it happens all the time or that you should expect it to, or if it doesn't happen for you all the time, you're like some kind of lower-class Christian, not worthy of the voice, while the rest of us have God whispering in our ear. No. Your obedience... Uh, that's, that's the first thing. Second thing, your obedience does not hang on constantly obeying impulses and impressions like that. So, and some of you really won't like this, and I'm happy to talk to you about it more. But so, so if he would not have gone to the mall... Was that, would that have been disobedience or sin? I would say no. If he hadn't have gone, I'm going to say God would have sent somebody else. Okay? Now, what am I basing that on? I'm basing that on our understanding of sin being violation of the law of God. Right? So, so sin is a transgression of the law of God or an absence of obedience to it. That's what our, our catechism tells us, right? Our catechism defines sin, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. 
It does not hang on obeying every random impulse. Now, are you free to follow moments and impulses like that? Of course you are, so long as they are not violations of what God has said in Scripture. And you might find that when you do, these things are blessed by God and enable you to love your neighbors in some really surprising ways that you had very little to do with, thanks be to God. So I hope that hasn't confused you. I'm, I'm trying to express that, yes, I think there are times, like the haircut in the mall story, where God gives us direction like that. As far as, like, how to break down that system and, and how to tap into the code and how to make sure that every thought that pops into your head is like the Holy Spirit, we are not promised anything like that to, to be normative in our life. Rather, what we're taught is to have the Word of God in our hearts to grow in wisdom, Right? so that we're applying wisdom to the decisions that we have to make. So i got another story for you. Okay? A pastor, uh, actually, let me rewind that. There's a new religious movement that got going in the Midwest. It was built around a man who proclaimed himself to be a sort of spiritual guru, uh, kind of a spiritual guru prophet, and started to gather people around him to hear his special words from God. Right? If you smell a cult forming, you are correct. Faithful churches and pastors in the area pretty quickly realized that's what was going on. And one pastor in the area had a woman in his church who seemed to be becoming more and more enamored with this this cult leader and kind of attaching herself to a lot of his teachings and what he was doing. And so the pastor met with the woman and was trying to counsel her out of it, as it were, because what the guy was, was teaching was really, really dangerous. And suffice it to say, those counseling meetings were not going well. One morning, it was the morning of their fifth or sixth meeting together, the pastor was doing his devotionals. And he happened to be in the book of Second Peter, chapter 2. Which I'm going to, I don't think I have it in the presentation there, so I'm going to just turn to it. And you can go there with me if you'd like. Second Peter, chapter 2, which is toward the end, there we go, of the New Testament. Second Peter, chapter 2, and this is what he read. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Okay? Many will follow their sensuality, is what it said. And uh, this pastor, I heard him being interviewed on, uh, on the radio, And he said, I read that text, many will follow their sensuality, the sensuality of the false teachers, and I thought about it for a moment, I meditated on it, you know, meditated on this reality that false teachers often gather a following around them because of their desires for power and their lust, sensuality. And in that moment, he said, I was just struck with this deep sense in my spirit that this woman I was meeting with had engaged herself in a sexual relationship with this cult leader. Now, could he be certain? No. That would be... Uh, but, but it would be consistent with Second Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Sure, it would be consistent with it, but he couldn't be certain. So this, it, it was a sense that he had while reading the Scriptures, an application of those words in real time, in real life. The Holy Spirit, as it were, he felt, took these words and gave him this word, she's fallen into this very trap. He met with her later that day, read 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, and flatly confronted her and asked her the question. And she burst into tears and slowly began to confess everything. Now, 
two stories. One involves the spiritual two-by-four, right? Go to the mall. The other involves the application of the words of God by the Holy Spirit of God. And what you probably expect me to say is maybe like the first story's junk and the second story's gold, okay? I'm not going to say that. What I am going to say is I wish the second story was more common among us, and it's not. The first one is, if we're honest. A lot of conversations about spirit leading and stuff, the first one is the more common one. I just wish the second type was more common, more, more, uh, more uh, people more grounded in the word in these things. That in our testimonies and our conversations, that the, the second type of story is more common among us. And I think it's very dangerous for us to have an overwhelming number of testimonies, conversations that are made up just of examples of the first one, and maybe like a few of the second one. Because in Christianity, the Spirit and the Word are always working together. And we're always tempted to separate them, right? We take the Word sometimes. We don't allow for the Holy Spirit because we want to reduce the Bible to a way that puffs us up in our knowledge, but never drives us to our knees in conviction of our sin, our false righteousness, and God's judgment of our hypocrisy. Or we focus on the Holy Spirit, but not so much the Word, because private revelations make us feel really special, and let's be honest, they give us an enormous feeling of authority over our brothers and sisters, because we get to say, the Lord told me such and such, don't you wish He talked to you like that? But what the Holy Spirit does to us most importantly is that He glorifies Jesus to us. Like, put, put aside for a moment then all those debates about the thing I just told you about, and I want, you, I want us to focus and end on this note that the most important thing the Holy Spirit does for us is reveals to us the glory of our Savior and causes our hearts to rejoice when we hear that gospel. So we look around and we ask, how can people believe this gospel? And maybe, maybe you ask in particular, how can people in our cultural moment believe the gospel? It doesn't, you know, doesn't seem like it's kind of sweeping through in the ways that we wish it was. So how, how, how can we talk people into it? How can my son or daughter who's so far from the Lord believe? How can I myself even trust the Lord in the midst of this hardship that I'm in, in the midst of this affliction that I'm in? I'm going to quote Don Carson one more time. He says, We look around the world and we wonder how men could ever be persuaded to believe the gospel. We do not want to stoop to gimmicks. We perceive that intellectual argument alone gains us nothing. We meet men and women who believe certain facts about Christianity, but who still refuse to trust in Jesus, and we wonder how can we penetrate the barrier of unbelief. And the answer is that the Spirit glorifies Jesus because He takes what is real about Jesus and declares it to my heart and to yours and to the heart of your unbelieving neighbor, and in His time, pierces that heart with His truth. So then it, it is fitting for us to ask. Because in verse 15, Jesus concludes this by saying, all the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so the gospel itself becomes this triune operation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? The Father sending his Son, who purchases us with his own blood, who, who takes our sin upon him on the cross, who raises again, leaving our sin buried, but, he, but himself rising up. Then he ascends and he sends us his spirit so that we can continue to confess these realities until the end of time. 
And so if it is the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart and yours to draw out our amen to this good word, then the question that is worth asking this morning, brothers and sisters, is, is is that where your heart is? Giving this gospel your glad amen. Does the crucified and risen Christ have our glad yes and amen? And if not, if not, I would say plead with God today that the Father, by the gospel and promises and blood of His Son, would fill you with the Holy Spirit, that you would confess the cross of uh, Christ with joy until your very last breath. Because as temptation and persecution come, what you and I need more than anything are the words of Jesus and the victory of Jesus that are given to us and applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so let us walk in these things and these realities with great joy in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, we ask that you would help us as we seek to follow you, as we seek to remain faithful to our Lord Jesus. We pray you would open our eyes again simply to the beauty of this gospel that saves even us. And so what we are doing there is asking for your Holy Spirit to fill us again, to renew our minds, to convince us not only of the truth, but of our assurance of salvation, our confidence that we are kept by our Savior that we would continue to remain steadfast in faith and hope and joy and love until the very last.